Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 187 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Kavita Das. Here's a bit about Kavita. Kavita Das worked in social change for close to 15 years, addressing issues ranging from community and housing inequities to public health disparities to racial injustice. Although Kavita remains committed to social justice issues, she left the social change sector to become a full-time writer and to tell the life story of Grammy-nominated Hindustani singer Lakshmi Shankar, through her first book called Poignant Song, The Life and Music of Lakshmi Shankar. This is from HarperCollins, India in June of 2019. At the root of both her writing and social change work is Kavita's desire to provoke thought and engender change by recognizing and revealing the true ways in which culture, race, and gender intersect, especially when it comes to social societal inequities. Kavita has been a regular contributor to NBC News, Asian America, Los Angeles Review of Books, and The Rumpus. In addition, her work has been published in Wired, Poets and Writers, Catapult, Lit Hub, Tin House, Long Reads, Kenyon Review, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, CNN, Guernica, McSweeney's, Fast Company, Quartz, Color Lines, Romper, and elsewhere. She was nominated for a 2016 Pushcart Prize, and her full writing portfolio can be found on her websites. Kavita created the popular writing about social issues nonfiction seminar, which inspired her second book, which will be the thrust of our conversation today, Craft and Conscience, How to Write About so Social Issues. And she has taught at the New School and Catapult, along with being a frequent guest lecturer. Her essays on social issues have been included in two creative writing textbooks. She received a BA in Urban Studies from Bryn Mawr College and an MBA in Marketing from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. A native New Yorker, Kavita and her husband, Om, try to keep up with their toddler, Daya, and Harper, their hound. How did I do on the bio? Great. Great. Welcome. Thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to you. I was mentioning that the writing portfolio can be found at your website. Is that KavitaDas.com? It's KavitaDas.com. Okay. And that's spelled D-A-S and Kavita with a K. I'm usually bad about this, so let's get that out of the way first. Um, tell us about social media you know your info on social media your contact info how to get in touch with you say also maybe any places to you'd recommend to buy your book oh sure um social media i'm on i'm on the facebook twitter at kavita mix and on i'm on instagram although you'll you will get some baby and doggy photos there uh in addition to <laughs> writing stuff and that's just my name kavita das um and i think that's and then i have my website kavita das and that's where um I post all uh, my writing, you know, my other writing outside of the books. Um, and uh, most of my work has been digital. So you can find a lot of it there. And um, it's also where I share news about upcoming classes. Um, so I'm, as, I, as you mentioned, you know, the 
my class writing about social issues inspired the book. So I continue to teach in different venues. And um, I'm very, I very much like to teach outside of academic settings, because uh, as we'll talk about, I don't have an MFA, I don't come from a traditional writing background. So I love reaching people where they are. Mm. So usually the people I teach, you know, they are they come from all kinds of backgrounds. They're working full time in other sectors and and taking time out of their life to you know to 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 write about uh, the issues that they care most about. Um, and what did you say? Oh, in bookstores. Yeah. Oh, bookstores. Yeah. You know, I indie bookstores. I love indie bookstores. Um, but I'm also uh, really happy to see the resurgence of Barnes and Noble. I am someone who, if I don't find something in my indie bookstore, I ask them and they're so wonderful. They order it for me. Um, and so I, I love when folks do that because I think, that, you know, it, it helps everybody then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for like such important work you know, and the just activism, progressive issues, and then writing about it. And I love how, you know, like you talk about you meeting people where they are, you don't necessarily teach the, you know, the, the, the pipeline, the model, the MFA, which is great for some, but, and I, I bet your, uh, what is it? The, I was gonna say 401k, that's not the term. I bet your, your W2s or whatever, kind of a mess, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, that, I don't that, even know. Writers like yourself say, you know, get a good accountant or something, you know, or, or be self-taught yeah. and really know what you're doing. Cause there's, all kinds of things like that. So, you know, this is a safe space. You were talking before we started recording and you said you had a confession to make. I'd love to ask you about um, about growing up and your relationship with language, with reading and, and writing. And if you want to share that deep, dark confession. Actually, those, you know, there are many deep, dark confessions. Oh, no. So on language uh, itself, you know, you triggered me by, in a good way. In, okay. I mean, it triggered me in the, in the sense of made me think about uh, language from the get-go was an issue. I actually had a, a speech issue and I, um, you know, saw a speech pathologist for years. Uh, I, of course, was speaking and I was saying a whole lot, but people weren't understanding what I was saying because I couldn't articulate um, in the way that they understood. I would, because I was born with a cleft palate and it was actually, you know, sometimes you have a cleft lip and a cleft palate. I only had a cleft palate, so people couldn't even see that I had any uh, issue. Um, so that affected my speech for years. And I'm I'm just thinking about this as you ask this question. I wonder to what extent, because language was, you know, I had this developmental issue on, on language and, you know, expressing, you know, how that might have affected uh, my feelings about reading. Um, and I was saying that. I know uh, I feel always like a little guilty, like it's a deep, dark secret of mine as a writer, you know, with two books out in the world um, that, you know, usually reading comes, uh, being an avid reader comes before becoming an avid writer. Mm. And I wasn't a big reader as a child. Uh, I had a big imagination and I had lots of imaginary friends, um, <laughs> but I wasn't as much into reading uh, it wasn't something that was hugely en encouraged. And I think I didn't, uh, when I look at the books available to kids now in terms of the diversity of themes and diversity mm -hmm. of characters, that wasn't so much what I experienced. So I feel like that was part of the issue. And, you know, the the more petty side of it is that um, my older sister was a big reader. And so mm -hmm. you sometimes, sometimes you want to do just what your older sibling does. And sometimes you yeah. want to go in the opposite direction. And unfortunately, I was the latter. So, um, you know, I, I kind of did that for a while. And then it was really not till college that I um, 
really started reading for myself. And, but once it happened and I, and I think the, the important thing is one of the reasons I was able to do that is because by that time there, there was, you know, I think we were right. This was in the early nineties and we were seeing this kind of huge surge in multicultural literature, right? Mm-hmm. You had Kazuo Ishiguro and you had Banana Yoshimoto, you had Isabella Allende, and then uh, soon thereabouts, you had Jhumpa Lahiri and, um, um, you know, and Arundhati Roy and, you know, all of that. And so you had more and more, um, certainly there were all, also the the Black writers, you know, and to be very honest, because I, I grew up in Queens in New York City in a very diverse, you know, I think it's, I grew up in the most diverse county in the country. Mm. Um, and then I moved to suburban New Jersey and mm. I was literally one, one of a handful of students uh, of color. And so we didn't read Black literature. So mm. I honestly wasn't even aware of you know uh and i think of uh i get so sad when i think of um i get joy when i think of like when the, the first moments i read words by james baldwin mm-hmm. and how it felt like some uh, a voice from absolutely today not from decades ago so much of what he said is literally happening today and it's so relevant and yet i feel so sad when i think of uh the fact that i was denied you know, uh, knowledge about him and, and reading about like, why is, why is his work not like, you know, um, why, why wasn't it being studied, you know, yeah. uh, in history class and English class in both. <laughs> right. So, um, right. so I think once I uh, understood that, you know, literature was not outside of me, separate from me, but was actually about, you know, was about me and figuring out life, I suddenly felt such a deep connection. And that's it. I was off to the races after that was it in the uh well thank you for that was it in the personal narrative chapter well the idea of what, what part of it was about i think it was chapter six maybe chapter five but the the personal narrative one um was that where you shared your story of the cleft palate because you, you definitely shared your story i think i shared it in the last chapter, the last um, chapter. Okay. because okay. i shared in the last chapter because the the book opens with um the first chapter is about understanding your motivations Mm -hmm. for writing about, you know, social. So before we kind of, people often rush to doing the writing without kind of stepping back and saying, why am I writing? What seems Mm. like such an obvious question, Mm. but I felt like since uh, the great George Orwell, probably one of the great uh, social chroniclers um, um, ever, um, you know, took the time to explain, you know, why he writes. And I included that essay as like, you know, the first, uh, you know, um, essay in the book, uh, mm-hmm. because I love that he's so honest. You know, like, you think he's going to say this person who wrote 1984 and Animal Farm, you think he's going to say to, you know, get rid of the fascists to, you know, mm-hmm. to make people understand what's going on and wake them up, you know, wake their senses. But actually, he talks about the beauty of no, first, he talks about being petty and getting mm-hmm. back at people who were awful to him, even parents, you know, or grownups who were awful, you know, to him as a child. And I just, I chuckled when I read that and I said, oh, good. That's a reason. Great. Yes, yeah. um, and then he talked about the the next reason was like the beauty of the language, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the beauty of a sentence or a, a word, a singular or a turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, like he's allowing himself to enjoy the craft of writing, you know, and then 
you know, uh, motivation three and four was where he got into being a chronicler of what's going on, trying to push the needle on social issues. So I really appreciated that. So, you know, the, the book opens with talking about the motivations for writing about social issues. And at the end of the book, the last chapter is about the implications. And usually when we talk about writing about social issues, it's, um, it's, it's a presumption that it's about, um, you know, it's a positive uh, that we're trying to, you know, uh, we are uh, achieving social change, mm. but there's also negative implications of writing about social issues. So, um, and when, uh, I think it's particularly important when you're writing about yourself to consider before the work goes out into the world, mm -hmm. what will be the implications of people knowing your business, you know, like of, of bearing your soul, bearing your life, bearing things that maybe, you know, only a handful of people know. And, you know, now more people will know. And I don't feel like this is something that is talked about in the writing workshop, in, in the writing, you know, in the, you know, in MFA programs and in education of, you know, because there's so much of a drive for uh, publication. Mm. But then, you know, once you're published, you have to live with it being out in the world and it kind of no longer belongs to you completely. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm amazed at how many writers um, are surprised by this. Mm -hmm. I understand it. I understand because yeah. I've experienced it. So, so for example, I can write about fraught issues uh, because I worked in social change for, you know, several years. So writing about it, you know, um, I'm not saying it's easy and it doesn't give me some trepidations, but I'm, I'm just, that that's kind of the world that I came from, mm -hmm. but writing about my own personal circumstances is much more challenging to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I feel, you know, it, it, I feel kind of very exposed, you know, in that situation. So in that last chapter, I shared a piece that I wrote that was about my own um health struggles as a child being born with a, you know, uh, a cleft palate. And um, while some people might not think that that's a very deeply personal, you know, revealing piece for me, it was, you know, because it, it really carried off into my adulthood and like mm -hmm. my own challenges of realizing, you know, how to navigate the health system, you know, as an adult. Yeah, it, it was one of those that was so... Um it was so specific to your situation, but obviously there are others who have gone through it, but it's, I mean, it's the idea of reading as, as empathy, right. Or as empathy or as close as you can get to empathy. I did not experience that, but no. um, you know, but, but you just described it so well and just, just, it made me think of, it didn't make me think of it. You, the way you wrote about it, you know, talk about the implications of even like language, right. Where you talked about how the doctor may be well-meaning, but was like, yeah. Hey, to your parents, like, don't, don't teach her any other languages. That's going to get her. Yeah confused yeah. yes. you know, you'll, you'll hear you'll hear you'll hear people say that anyway even without any other ex extenuating right? yes. that situation where he inserted himself in that and and who knows how much damage or how much things could have been different right if he hadn't said that that's yeah exactly and and that was probably good medicine at that time perhaps mm. perhaps you know that's me trying to have a compassionate you know look that things have changed so much you know in that in that time but like one of the the one of the key things that I wanted to impart you know, for including it in the book was um so often when I write something about a social issue that's kind of in a macro sense um you know uh I will have people you know, whether it's on social media or what have you, 
uh, say, if they agree with my viewpoint, they're like, yeah, that's right. I totally agree. And then there'll be the people who are in opposition and they're like, you're stupid. This is, makes no sense, you know, whatever. And so there'll be that kind of reaction to my work, which I'm more used to. Um, and this was different. I received uh, emails from people directly to me about having uh uh, growing up with a cleft lip or cleft palate and their journeys and how it was um, it really they loved seeing that reflected because it's not something that they really see out there or other personal health struggles um, and it touched me in a different way and so it helped really alleviate you know uh, anxiety that I had about you know sharing these things and I thought oh this is this is why you do it yeah. you do this because you 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 put a little light on this and and then and then in that candlelight you suddenly see other people who mm. who are um who have been going through the same thing i like that image of the candlelight that's a good one yeah yeah so you know you were talking about like the language um am i correct then that the Beng- would it be bengali and tamil would have been spoken or what yes. Been the language? yes yeah. exactly is, you're right is, you know is there are there anything in those languages in particular that like you feel like lend yourself to your writing now like maybe the the cadence of the language yeah. or the some of the i don't know you know verb structures you know? yeah no, that's a really good question i i i think that you know um sometimes you you go right into the work and um without reflecting too much i know that you know where i see it probably the the most so you know bengalis are often you know they're like um poets and artists you know rabindranath tagore who was a Nobel prize winner um you know uh is is Bengali and he's uh he's kind of held up and so um respected mm-hmm. and I uh for me I think definitely um he also composed a lot of songs and so there's a whole grouping of his music um and I used the um his Gitanjali I used lines from his poetry oh. to title the chapters of my first book poignant song the life and music of Lakshmi uh-huh. Shankar because she uh she was not actually Bengali she married into the Shankar right. family who were Bengali and she sang his music um mm-hmm. this is Tagore's music so I, I I thought you know and so I sat down with his um Gitanjali and, and looked for lines that spoke to moments in her life and then you know kind mm-hmm. of so that's that was something where I I think that there is definitely a a poetry, um, you know, in in the language in the language, and uh, and in Tamil, you know, I I think I I think about the I don't know where it comes from, but titles for pieces and titles of chapters are are something I it's a starting point for me. It's not something I come to at the end. I see. Uh, so when I'm writing something, I come up with a title. And that becomes the container and the and what I'm trying to fill. It's not something that I come to at the end, mm-hmm. um, because as I'm writing, if I feel myself drifting or shifting away from that title, that's a sign. And I might end up uh, deciding to go with the drift, mm-hmm. but then I will, you know, change the title to reflect that. But I'm always okay. kind of, you know, checking back in to you know to the title and so i feel like turns of phrases that might have uh, originated in one of those languages like my mother has a phrase for every situation you know something will happen you know milk will spill or something will happen you name it and she'll be like that is why in tamil they always say and it'll be like insert Mm -hmm. 
for that moment. And I begged her to write all of these things down so that we can have them. Can you, can you think of a particularly evocative one, like saying that that maybe can't be translated literally, but. So essentially there's, there's one that I'm going to completely batter it, you know, because (laughs) as, as, as you noted, I, um, I understand Tamil and Bengali very well. I also understand Hindi, but I don't speak it because it wasn't encouraged by uh, my early doctors and speech therapists that it it was a feeling that I would be confused by learning English and another language, even though, as we know in Europe and so many other parts of the world, kids learn many languages at, at the time when they are sponges for, you know, everything, but there's an experience expression where um where you know somebody says to you you look at the yellow sky and the the black moon and the you know and white tree and um and by saying that you realize that they don't they don't know not only do they know they don't know what black is or white is or yellow is and they don't know what a tree is or moon is or <laughs> yeah, the sky so they reveal to you you know uh... that, that they actually know nothing by telling you you know oh, so like i'm that. Yeah, it's like you have to kind of look at who's telling you what is the yeah. is the point is like if somebody tells you something, yeah. it, it reveals what they know and don't know. <laughs> and we're not going to name any names of people we know who might. No, no, no it's no. never come to mind. No, not exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'd love to know about like the seeds for the project and just also like why or how you decided to make it as an anthology. Sure. That's a great question. Uh, so the, the, the book really grew out of, so I say that I wrote the book that I wish I had after mm-hmm. creating the class that I wish I had had, you know, mm-hmm. so um, the class, I should say, you know, I worked in um, social change and social justice for uh, 15 years, close to 15 years. And uh, in the last few years, I was working in racial justice. And this was during Obama's second term. So, you know, there was a feeling in this country that we were post-racial, you know, we had elected a Black president, not once, but two times. And so, and I was working in an organization, heading up marketing communications, trying to highlight that, you know, that, that, that was just not the case, you know, that there were still major issues, immigration issues, you know, we were having um, the killings and murders of Trayvon Martin, and, you know, uh, so many others, and that was happening, you know, in in that in that moment, and it was kind of a, um, so we were really trying to point to systemic issues, you know, rather than, you know, each of these incidents show how they are not just isolated, but related to systems, you know, of, whether it's police brutality or um, pointing to murders that were happening in the transgender community that were just underreported, you know, um, looking at migrant children who are being put into the foster and adoption system, even though their parents were alive and um, in detention. So there were things that were just not being covered by the media, you know, that we were trying to uh, focus on. Um, voter, Voter suppression, voter voting rights, which we're now talking about, but we were really trying to highlight this as an issue and it just wasn't, you know, understood or seen, you know, and now we understand how much work was being done while Obama was president, you know, to curtail people's rights that we're now seeing, you know, um, 
in in action. So anyway, so that was like that was what I was uh, doing, and and then I came to writing to write my first book, which was a biography, and it was it was this. I'm a very logical, you know, hyper logical person. So I was doing my work. I had wearing many hats, as many people do in in when you're working in the nonprofit or social change sector. And, um, but I also have always loved Lakshmi Shankar's music, you know, mm. as my taste evolved and I got into, I was in, you know, in college during grunge and, you know, and, and it all evolved. Her music was like this kind of North star that followed me. And I, I also loved her story. I mean, I, that she was this, um, probably the most prominent Indian female in the movement that brought Indian music to the West in the late sixties. Mm. And, and I just, you know, it was one of those things where I, I had always assumed that somehow her story would get out there. She was a Grammy nominated artist. And and I in we're doing the work that I was doing on, um, you know, racial justice issues writ large. I, I came to realize, oh, on a quieter level, this is how racial injustice works, you know, by erasing the stories of contributions. I was working in uh, racial justice during that time. And, and that's when it struck me that, um, you know, she was in her 80s, Lakshmi Shankar was in her 80s, and that her story was in danger of disappearing, mm. you know, and that just made me so sad, you know, and I thought, well, somebody has to do something about this. And I thought somebody as in somebody else, you know, um, I didn't know how to write a biography, I didn't know, um, I didn't have any connections in the book world. And, you know, just the thought of it, I, I had barely, I had written letters to the editors and op-eds. I mean, that's mm. what I'd written. And I had been uh, in a writing group um, writing things that were kind of autobiographical, you know, in nature, but I, I was doing it really for my own edification and, you know, finding community, uh, particularly amongst, uh, amongst uh, a group of South Asian women writers, but I didn't have aspirations for becoming a writer. Mm. At least that's what I was telling myself at the moment, because I had my hands full. Um, and so that's what I think is the best thing, you know, is that you, what is it, John Lennon, who said, you know, life is what happens while you're making other plans mm. or something like that. I'm mm. uh, to that effect. So I, I, um, I suddenly felt haunted. That's the best word I can use. Mm. I felt haunted in the sense of, are you really going to let this happen? You know, and even though I didn't have a logical answer of how I was going to go about doing this, I suddenly felt compelled. And mm. Lakshmi Shankar was in Los Angeles. I was in New York. So I said, okay, well, let me at least start by collecting her story. So it started with that. And I went out there and recorded and, you know, asked her lots of questions. And um, and, and it really started, if I'm very honest, um, when Ravi Shankar died. Okay. He passed away and it hit me like a ton of bricks because that's, I know it's so obvious, but you kind of believe that your icons are going to live forever. And I, I suddenly realized her mortality and mm. that she wouldn't be with us. And that's when I thought, oh, my gosh, this is really in danger of mm. being lost. I mean, thankfully, he had written his own memoir autobiography and others had written and someone was working on his biography, uh, Oliver Krask. And so his story was covered, like, honestly, most male figures and um, mm. female figures, I think, are often obscured. So I went about trying to like, you know, collect her story. And then I thought, and then as I, and the truth is about a year into it, while I was still working and everything, 
she passed away. And I had, you know, the recording, the inter- recorded interviews that I had, and um, there was so much more that I had wanted to, you know, mm-hmm. ask her. And so the question was, what, what was I going to do? Would I just write, you know, an article and call it a day? Or would I try to write this biography? And where, how does one do that? How do you find a publisher? All that kind of, you know, those questions were there. Um, and so I just kind of set forth um, in doing that. And then um, while I was doing that, because I had worked, you know, in the realm of social change for 15 years, and I honestly was very shocked, you know, even uh, coming late to to writing and not coming from a traditional background, I just called together, you know, I, I, um, I went to Tin House, you know, summer writing workshop several times, and that was an amazing experience. And I went to Vona, Voices of uh, Our Nation's mm-hmm. Artists. I went to um, just, and I, and as I'm sure others have talked about, the workshop experience is a, whew, it's a, <laughs> it can be bracing, it can be amazing, yeah. dispiriting, demoralizing. Uh-huh. I kind of experienced it all, and I guess I was taking it all with me. Um, and later when I would create my class, I would think about what is it that I want to keep from there and what do I not want to replicate because mm-hmm. of how damaging it was. But, um, you know, ultimately while I was writing, I was um, writing, working on the book, which was, I didn't realize was going to be a six year, seven year <laughs> process. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I would write you know, kind of just to stay sane and to make some money and to just kind of get bylines about the issues that I most cared about that I had been working on, uh, mm-hmm. issues of race. And particularly in the publishing sector, It now we talk about it more, but like the publishing sector is 80 to 85% white, you know, particularly in terms of the, uh, you know, the uh, publishers. And I was like, I, in the beginning, now we talk about it, but at the time, it really wasn't remarked Mm -hmm. upon. I was like coming from racial justice to that was Mm -hmm. really bracing. And I'd be like, are we not going to talk about this? Are Mm -hmm. we not going to write about this? Mm -hmm. So I would write about these things. You know, I wrote about it for the Atlantic and for Los Angeles Review of Books. And, and I could tell, you know, the react from people's reactions. Some people were like, yes, I'm so glad that you wrote about this. I totally agree. And, you know, there were people, you know, more and more people writing about it. And then there were those who were didn't appreciate it. <laughs> it was like I had said something, you know, inappropriate at dinner. <laughs> you know, it's like that, you know, like you're not supposed to expose mm. these, you know, um, like, yeah. And I and I completely don't agree with that, you know, um, particularly in, in the world of ideas. Mm. So that's where, you know, so I wrote and, you know, and I wrote more and more. And then I, I would have sometimes writers, you know, fellow writers turning to me because they wanted to write about social and they weren't ask for my advice. And then I sat down and thought, you know, I, when I came to writing, I had to, I had to negotiate, I guess I'll use the word compromise, because it's always, you know, like figuring out how to write about this thing I care about, in a way that does justice to the issue, but in a way that compelling, um, right? that is compelling, and yeah. that has narrative. And the truth was, I, I knew the social issues, part of it but I had to learn the craft of writing and I had to understand and I had to um kind of be honest with myself because in the sense of when I'm a reader I am you know when I'm a reader when I'm reading novels when I'm you know in terms of my pleasure reading I had to be honest about what were the things that were the elements that most intrigued me Mm -hmm. you know well you know really interesting characters you know really interesting voice you know voice is probably the most 
um, nebulous thing. It's so mm. hard to, you know, nail down, but you know it when you, you know, you see it. So um, I really look at the elements, you know, that I was most interested in. And when I sat down and thought about, you know, why did this piece of writing that I had done work? Why did it work? And why did other things that I write, you know, while full of wonderful facts and important, crucial facts, but it, it actually felt like a lead balloon. You know, why Why was that? And it was because I had approached it more like a policy brief rather than mm -hmm. saying, I really want you to know about this and I'm really excited for you to know wow. about this. I'm going to pull you in in this way. I'm going to, you know, um, you know, think about the narrative. Those were the beginnings of me putting together this class on writing about social issues. And I found that, you know, people would show up and the people who take the class are a mix of social change agents who are working in the field, who want to share what they know, uh, academics who are trying to, in some ways, unlearn uh, the way they've been taught to write, you know, mm -hmm. in the you know, I retire away from academic to academic, uh, and they really, you know, want to move the needle and talk to others. And then, as I mentioned, like there are people who my class is their first writing class, and people who are deeply affected by the issue. They they are either witnesses to it or they've experienced it, and they're they're finally at a point where they want to write about it. And some of them are excellent storytellers, and I really mm. just try to encourage them and and push them forward. So this book grew out of uh, the class because, you know, with the class, I'm only able to reach a few people at a time, but the book is able to get out there into the world. And really my ultimate goal through the class and with the book is to help encourage more writers of conscience, people mm -hmm. who want to engage these issues, but maybe they're a little bit afraid because of how fraught things are, you know, um, at the moment, and they're trying to figure out how to do so. Thank you. The So the book is broken into the seven chapters. I don't know if you call them chapters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Seven chapters, the intro, the conclusion. The the intro is done by Mira Jacob, who's a great oh, one, nice. right? Yeah. You, you write about later in the book about one of her, I guess, like a keynote speech that, yes. that was ironically kind of under underappreciated and she was able to write about it and kind of get more of the word out. Yes. But she writes about, you know, words as community, um, both of you write about the, about connecting about, you know, there, there are a lot of people doing the good work, whether in through writing, whether through the social change or both. And it's about, you know, this is, able, you're able to connect people. It's one thing to be writing, it's to be working in an isolated way, but it's another to, to bring about social change together. And you asked that great question earlier that I forgot to get to, and it relates to this. Mm -hmm. You asked, you know, how did I decide how did I decide yeah. on the format of an anthology? And essentially two reasons. One is that, you know, in the class, one of the ways that we learn, like I can tell them, here's, here are my thoughts on context versus narrative. And here mm -hmm. are my, you know, here's the lesson on it. But I find the best way that we learn is by seeing that those principles in action in the writing. And you can see how a writer has done that through their writing. So mm -hmm. that's what, you know, we did. So I didn't want a book of theory you know, or craft, you know, book that I'm like, okay, well, good luck, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I told you these things, so I wanted them to see it. I put in, I had thoughts about whether I should include my own work or not in this book. So in my original plans, it was not there. And then I thought, but you know, I can, I can dissect other 
people's work to some extent, but I can't tell you why they did what they did. Mm. I can I can show you it in action. Whereas with me, I can come clean and sure. say, okay, this is where I started. This is where I ended up. This is what I had misgivings about. This is what, you know, ended up happening. And I'm really glad about it. Like, as we talked about, like my piece about, you know, being born with a cleft palate, I felt like if I was going to talk to other people about putting their own writing about their lives out in the world, I wanted to share what it was like for me. Yeah. Uh, to to do that. But then the other reason I did an anthology is exactly the reason you mentioned, which is that writing can be a very lonely affair. Mm. And on top of that, if you're writing about fraught issues where everybody's either pro or anti, and you, you, you it has this kind of, particularly now more than ever, this kind of combative fraught mm. feeling, you, you, um, it's important to know, and I think it's very inspiring to know that you're part of a long tradition mm. of people, you know, whether it's Orwell and, you know, so many people today on so many different issues, writing with different approaches and different voices. And so I wanted people to be able to gravitate and find uh, an approach that uh, speaks to them um, and to know that they are part of a community, you know, even if it doesn't feel like that in that moment. So that mm. was the other reason it was really important to do an anthology. And I spent the first six months not writing a word. I spent the first six months mm. figuring out which uh, voices and pieces to include in mm. the book before I even moved forward. Oh, man. Well, so many cool voices throughout. I'm a big fan of anthologies and epigraphs. And you have the great Jericho Brown, the Pulitzer Prize winning mm. poet. Basically, you know, um, that every poem is a love poem. Every poem was a political poem. Right. Um, the the title of the first chapter is why we write interrogating our motivations for writing about social issues. Um, and the question basically comes up and, you know, is all writing political? And, you know, I think a lot of times the people who will say no are people who have the privilege to not to be a political. Right. Me as a white man, I, I don't necessarily have to. It's kind of assumed a lot of people have written about this more eloquently than I'm saying it. But like, you know, people might. I can maybe assume that people know that my my characters are, you know, whomever, whatever, or right. This idea of like being apolitical is is definitely a privilege in itself, right? It's a it's a it's a privilege and a fallacy. It's both. Mm. It's kind of both at the same. And so, the, literally, the first thing I do in my class before even people introduce themselves to each other mm -hmm. is I ask this question: Is all writing political? And mm. we have this great conversation where people say, "Well, this kind of writing is," or mm. "That writing isn't." Well, novels aren't, and sci-fi, you know, like you know, they and we and they we have this free-ranging conversation, and it's and it's really good that we have a conversation about it, and. Um, you know, and my own feeling based on, you know, my whole, my, my background in social change work and in writing and as a reader mm -hmm. is that all writing is political. All writing is political. And really it, it's in, irrespective of the intentions of the writer, because as I mentioned, uh, and it's a little scary, I know, intimidating this thought that like, once your work is out into the world, irrespective of what your intentions are, there's yeah, how it's yeah. And so that's, and it's read through the perception of the reader and, mm. and who they are and their own identity. Um, you know, so that's, um, and, and also there's, you know, the way I think about it, there's writing that's more explicitly political and there's writing that's just more quietly political. Mm. And I think I gave the example in the book of like, you know, when you have Sex in the City come out and it's, you know, about the most diverse city, you know, right. in the world and there are no, substantive characters of color hmm. 
intentional or not, a decision has been made, you know, uh, a narrative decision. And I think that's the other question is like, you know, the title of the book really kind of speaks to this idea that issues like race, gender, sexuality, all kinds of identity issues are not separate from craft. And that's often how they've been approached in the workshop or in discussions. It's like, oh, we got, and we have people literally saying, we have to take identity issues out of the classroom. We have to take them out of, and and actually um, characters are all built by these things. They're all shaped by these things. So why would we approach them separately? You know, it's about having embodied characters that are robust that you know feel real to us Mm. so i i have a hard time understanding why this would be a separate conversation um craft it to me it's part and parcel of of craft You have a great quote from Christine Amanapour, you know, the famous. Oh, Christine Amanapour, yes. Yeah, the famous journalist. And just basically, and this comes up throughout the book, like just it's about like uh, Caitlin Greenridge kind of speaks to the same idea of like, um, well, maybe not exactly, but 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 Amanapour talks about, you know, being truthful and not neutral. Yes. Um, You know, later in the book, you talk about like the whole like both sides issue and, you know, oh, we need to show both sides. And, yes. lot of, you know, and people are saying, well, there's there's a moral truth. Right. And. And so Amanapur draws a difference, draws a distinction between being truthful and neutral. That's not, those are not the same things, right? It's, um, this, is a, this is a key distinction for me. And I think mm-hmm. what helped me was, um, uh, in, so in journalism, right, we, there's like, they hold objectivity so high and so lofty. Mm-hmm. And so I'm asking a question of, it might seem provocative to some, but if you have uh, extremely undiverse Mastheads and newsrooms, and they're covering during the era of the George Floyd, you know, uh, murder. Mm-hmm. You know, what does that look like? What does that, you know, what does that process look like? Who's covering it? How are they covering mm-hmm. it? And you know, I also know uh, that networks of Black journalists, even though they're so underrepresented, were were being uh, overwhelmed with try with being uh, pushed mm-hmm. to cover you know, this trauma. So it was like re-traumatizing because, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, uh, you know, this question of neutrality, whose neutrality? Right. I, I I push back under the, uh, against this notion of objectivity and neutrality, because really in some ways it's just covering that it's, um, it's only that, that only belongs to certain, you know, certain people, mm-hmm. the notion of objectivity and uh, neutrality and, and Christian Amanpour and Masha Gessen, two journalists I so hugely respect, um, kind of talk about truth and um, and and that truth is not necessarily uh, pursued by pursuing objectivity and neutrality, but mm. actually involves compassion and digging deeper and thinking about uh, where the writer does think about themselves and their institution that they're representing relative to who they're reporting on, you know, and Caitlin Greenidge also really kind of pushes back also in, in the great piece that's included in the book about who gets to write about whom. Right. So, so, you know, the first, the first chapter is a lot about why, you know, Orwell, like you mentioned, he, he's basically saying like, I'm, I'm lifeless or my writing's lifeless without political purpose. And the great James Baldwin was, I think I think it was uh, ironically. I think it, maybe not ironically, but coincidentally, I think from a 1984 interview. Yes. Uh, right. 
1984. But Baldwin said basically like, I I don't I don't want to be pushed into that. Like I don't. He wasn't so keen on like that. Everything has to be political purpose. No. And obviously, context as the book mentioned so much. Context matters so much that like, I kind of relate it to now. You know where it's like, there's so many writers of of color who are just like, hey, I just want to write about. Right. Yeah. I want to write about different types of characters. Right. I, even, you know, there's the, I even feel like I'm, you know, pushed to write a certain, like it's the whole um, Percival Everett type of book. Right. Yes. Right. And so, yeah. and so you, you do, you do chart how his, how he did change over the years and some of his comments, mm -hmm. but it's yes. not so interesting. Like, Hey, if we're, let's not box anybody in, but let's especially not box in the great James Baldwin. Right. No. And I loved that. I loved that. I am writing in, in, I wanted to include it, but I wanted to show that uh, he himself went through his own evolution. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. a chronicler who was, you know, chronicling, you know, as a black, um, a gay black writer, mm -hmm. you know, during the civil rights era, felt compelled to move out of the States because of, you know, the everything that was going on and how oppressive it was, mm. came back, you know, um, so there's so much going on and so like really understanding um that essay as part of his oeuvre you know um and 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 how you know it's like um beautiful even in the course of an essay you can kind of see him going back and forth and you know uh thinking about it um and how he feels and and this is the tension I feel honestly mm. you know as I as I work on things um, sometimes uh, the the part of me that has worked in social change for 15 years feels like maybe I've compromised too much for the sake of aesthetics, for the sake of narrative. Mm. Um, and and sometimes it's an issue of whom I'm writing for, not just the audience, but like the platform, you mm. know, so and you know, and uh, i've I've been thankful that I've had great editors who, you know, sometimes have said, oh, well, you know, um, some some have wanted me to explain much more, and I'm like, you know what? I don't. If it's a literary piece, I don't necessarily want to do you know a lot of that and and weigh it down uh, in that way. Or sometimes if it's a journalistic piece, they want to cut things that are that they think are too in depth that people don't need to know. But I actually think is really crucial to understanding the issue. You know, so it's like you're you're constantly kind of. Um, kind of making those negotiations you know for yourself and also with you know editors and you know publishers and so forth yeah um, well talking about like making nego like negotiating those things like the second chapter is how we're all connected it's you know the relationship between writer reader and subject it's like you yeah. talked about like you may have the the know-how you may have the the expertise but you got to get it across you have to make it compelling you have to make it interesting you have to make it the reader connect and, um, you know, you made an important point, which is maybe, I mean, it's maybe not like a, a huge discovery for people, but so worth reinforcing and mentioning, just like, don't leave out the voices or the stories of those impacted. A lot of this, a lot of the things that I really took from this book is like, you know, there are people who are trying to do the right thing. Yes. Right. As writers, but they don't think it through. They don't. No. I, there was another, you make good points too about, you know. I want to get this point across, whatever it is. I want, I, I even want this person to shine the victim. I want them to be, to be heard, but am I re-traumatizing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, you know, do I, am I able to tell this person's story? Should I be telling this person's story? Can someone tell it better than me? You know, that's, 
that's like the best case. And then the worst case is, you know, American dirt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and it's just amazing to see how people justify, you know, they, 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 you know, they will justify. And, you know, it, these things I don't have, they're not uh, always clear cut answers. I'm trying to at least pose people with questions to ensure that they've considered, made these, had these considerations, yes. you know, uh, because then, um, because here's the, you know, to me, when I think about that, there are writers um, who want to engage issues, who are coming with the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then maybe they're looking at the environment, you know, like one of the things there's, you know, a, a whole chapter on um, cultural sensitivity and avoiding cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. And I, as a writer, as an emerging writer, as emerging writer of color, I had to sit with that issue that was exploding every like every month or so right or every few weeks there's like an this 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 question that comes up and then there's it, it's in a very binary sort of way it's like mm. oh this person culture okay let's cancel them oh this is a culture you know yeah. and oh let's cancel and what this does this binary competition doesn't allow for an actual conversation or dialogue mm -hmm. and what it doesn't and what i had to sit with was you know i felt my own thoughts, you know, in terms of knowing how undiverse the publishing sector is. And, and so we would have this conversation about this singular person in this situation and, you know, what the response should be, but not about the broader systems. And that's how a lot of conversations in this country are. You know, we like to, you know, in the place where we, where I used to work, we used to say, we don't want to write about just the racists and, you know, and the reaction to the racists. We want to talk about systems that are enabling this on a broad scale right mm -hmm. you know and so that's how i felt is like we would ha we we have these hot takes you know yeah, on this on the, on the issue of the moment of the person who you know who has transgressed potentially but mm -hmm. we don't talk about you know why it is and and i had to sit down and ask myself however I, how do i want to censor people is that like what do i think as a writer do I want to be censored? Do I want somebody limiting what I think, you know? And mm. I thought, no, I I think humanity, having a shared humanity means, you know, I think most people should be able to write about most things. That's how I really felt. So then I said, so what am I, what am I upset about really? It's not really that this person wrote about this because I do believe as an artist, as a writer, most anybody mm. write about most anything. It's about how they approached it yeah, and yeah. how, uh, you know, insensitive they were and how they didn't even take the time to educate themselves on some basic things or to really most importantly reflect on who they are as they write about um this other community that they are not a part of mm -hmm. and that's really the 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 part that i find find often missing and that's why it was so important to include caitlin greenage's piece which i think complicates the issue in the best way because, mm -hmm. you know, she is a Black writer talking about supporting her fellow writer, Bill Chang, mm -hmm. you know, writing a book, a novel about, I think it's about the Reconstruction era, you know, in the United States about, mm -hmm. you know, Black folks in the South, you know, during that time. And I remember that book coming out after I became a writer. And I remember quiet debates about whether he should be able to write that book. Mm. And, you know, you know, and I myself thought I'm such a slow reader. You know, if I have the opportunity to read, should I read his book, you know, about mm. that? Or should I read a black writer's 
book about that era. Mm. And I'm, and it's a, uh, you know, I honestly remember thinking, and then I thought, should I be even asking myself that question? Shouldn't it mm. be about the book? And shouldn't, you know, and these are, these are questions that are swirling. And I, and, 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 um, you know, I started teaching about it in my class, you know, about, I felt like it was really important. And what do you know, it's, you know, I would get the most questions about this topic. And some people mm. were really, you know, concerned, and they wanted to, you know, uh, do right by things. And so I decided to have a very substantive chapter in this book yeah. about about the topic. Well, uh, I was really struck by this story, the Alexander Chi, who's obviously a great writer. Oh, my, you know, he where he decided not to to write a story that he felt you know, it was it was about the detective uh, couple, and it, I mean, it sounded like a great story. You know what I mean? Like he, you could see that being a great movie or a great fictional piece. You know that he would take some of the real life, but you know, it wasn't necessarily for like racial reasons or anything like that. It was just kind of like, I this isn't this isn't the story to tell. It's not it's not for me at this time to write for these various different reasons. And like, you know, I know as a as writers, you know, a lot of times it's like, oh man, like if I have this idea, this cool, like I'm going to latch on. But, you know, the whole idea of like killing your darling is like, he killed that darling. And I, I, you know, I, I, it's like, if I, uh, I, I love Alexander Chi, uh, his writing, I love, you know, his advocacy that mm. he does on and off the page. Um, um, but I would love to ask him more about that and, and understand, you know, the deeper reasons, because sometimes, you know, there's an, I, you know, like, I've had, you know, white writers say to me, oh, you know, oh, Kavitha, you write about really trendy, sexy stuff like race and, you know, like, and, you know, and, and they've said this, I mean, it's, it's happened multiple times and, you know, and I thought, oh, I, it's not because I, I, given where I came from and, you know, how I came to writing, I felt compelled. I felt okay. like I could not, you know, I felt it was like the way that I would continue the work in, in my new you know, in my new uh, identity as a writer, and I, I felt compelled, you know, and that's usually what makes me write things, because I'm like, mm. feel very, very compelled. It's not that I'm following a trend or a beat. And it's deeply unfortunate that, you know, um, it's it's kind of looked that way. But what I what I was getting at also is that sometimes things are very sparkly to us. But then when we go to actually delve into it, realize what mm. we don't have the depth to yeah, actually yeah fully realize that and I wonder if he felt like I found that interesting but actually I don't really want to inhabit right that world you know um and 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 it's like I think that sometimes it would be better served if some some writers who are approaching social issues as if they are beats or trends mm-hmm. you know stepped back and said am I doing what what and going back to the very first chapter what is my motivations um and what are the implications of this half-baked thing going out into the world like american dirt yeah yeah the you know obviously sensitivity is a huge part of of being a writer and that relationship between writer reader and subject please tell me is it is it jyoti jyoti singh oh jyoti jyoti singh yes oh my gosh right so so you use the two essays that you'd written about hers illustrations um you know, she was uh, the victim of a horrific sexual assault and, and murder, right? This was maybe yeah. like 2012 or so. Yeah, it was something like that. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, so you were, so one of the pieces called Tramp, which is like the translation of a Bollywood movie that what, you know, this, that is not directly related to the subject matter. And then you, but you, you, you wrote about your connections to that movie and how you did see a connection. 
yeah. to to the to the modern day crime. And then there's Jyoti's Rainbow. Yeah. Um, and you know, and about like it's so meta, right? It's like about four artistic pieces that were in response to that. Yes, exactly. You're writing about you're writing about those. And just the idea of being very um being very sensitive, not wanting to compromise her dignity, yeah. but really seeing lessons and then really seeing, you know, what did other people how have other people dealt with this and, and didn't make it just about, you know, it wasn't just a sub hundred percent subjective. So yeah. I thought that was a really nice balance that you you had there. Thank you. I, I, one of the things I usually try to do is share with my students two pieces. So you've seen this a couple of times during the book. So I think Garnett Cadigan has two pieces yeah, yeah. on kind of experiencing the, experiencing the world as a black man. Mm -hmm. uh, Shakira Diaz, also one of my friends and one of my favorite writers has two pieces on, you know, young Latinas, you know, uh, who are, um, you know, in danger. Um, and then, um, so I usually try to introduce students to two pieces on the same yeah. topic by the same writer, but mm -hmm. taking two different approaches to mm -hmm. show that you can, it doesn't have to be different people. It can be the same person can approach the same topic in, in, in sometimes in a deeply personal way, and sometimes in a more, uh, hands you know out you know examining it from different angles uh sort of a way and with that um i was deeply traumatized and troubled by you know uh what happened to jyoti singh and um and what it says about my culture you know um and uh being a woman and you know and all of that and i really um i i i kind of turned to these different artistic pieces to see what are other people what are what are what are we thinking about this what mm -hmm. what does this mean you know for mm -hmm. our culture you know and how can we especially against the whole kind of model minority myth and mm -hmm. you know this idea that indians are doctors and you know like all these things that positive messages that are kind of put out into the world and and meanwhile we don't talk about this we don't talk about caste issues you know that's why it was also important to include a piece by yashika dutt talking mm -hmm. about caste issues um you know uh, i myself my family is actually split by caste so um you know it's it's something that's you know really really important um and yet at the same time you know uh the piece that you mentioned tramp I remember when I found out that the translation of the title of that movie is Tramp. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, my gosh, this is kind of and you remember from the story, it's like, you know, women's lives were so arbitrated by. Like, yes, you know, yes. Um, and it actually I did. I don't know if I talked about it too much in that piece, but it goes back to like a Hindu mythology. So mm -hmm. they basically brought that into the modern age with that Bollywood movie. Mm -hmm. And that piece was actually edited by Roxanne Gay when uh -huh. uh, she was at the rumpus and. I remember meeting her, you know. Did you faint? Did you faint? I held myself up, you know, barely. And yeah. you, you won't believe it. It was at the Asian American Writers Workshop. And I met Roxanne Gay right as Bad Feminist, you know, was like mm. uh, coming out. And I was, I had just, you know, started. And and I said, hi, you know, you actually edited my first piece. And she's like, she's like, oh, you're Kavita. You're a good writer. And like, yeah. that sustained me for like, yeah, so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still remember those words. Like I was like, Roxanne Gay knows who mm, I am. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm a good writer. And even if she was lying to me, <laughs> that's okay too. Because <laughs> I think about how many thousands upon thousands of people she had seen at that right. point. Oh man. You mentioned, I'm sorry, tell me the first name again of, of uh, Cadigan, the writer. Garnett Cadigan. 
I mean, I mean, your pieces on on Jyoti Singh, and I mean, all throughout the book. I mean, just not to get on my on my podium or my what's the word, the soapbox, but you know, like with with you know with the decreased reading in the general populace, and it's not as bad as it seems. There are a lot of readers now, and of course, with the book banning and such, it's like, mm -hmm. how do you how do you not become more sympathetic, more empathetic by reading? You, you do. You automatically have to. How do you not grow to 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 appreciate more Yoti Singh's story and feel for her. And how do you not read, you know, I read um, the piece about walking, right? Oh my gosh. Called yeah. Black and Blue from Cadigan. Yeah. And it's like, you know, yeah. Whitman wrote so romantically, so eloquently just about walking and exploring. And, you know, I know that as mm -hmm. a white man, like as, as a male, I guess I think more, I think of safety and not, you know, not wanting to intimidate others, maybe in that kind of way, and you know, crossing. But, but as a white man, I don't have to think about those things. I, I mean, it's so moving. He talks about like, um, you know, like the uniform he had to wear, basically, not this color, mm -hmm. not that color. You know, he doesn't yeah. want to backtrack if if he's walking in front of somebody and he goes backwards. That's, you know, that's a, a sign of danger. And it's just like, man, walking should be peaceful and calming. And, and, that, you know, and that's the thing, the experience when, you know, when, um, when I have students who have an experience that speaks to the social issue that gets yeah. beyond, one of the things I tell them is that people can disagree with your point of view or your opinion, mm -hmm. but they can't disagree with your experience. Right. I mean, they probably can't, but like, they can't. <laughs> I mean, nowadays, they can disagree yeah. with everything. But Sadly, um, yes. no, but I, I, I feel like I, this is one of the things that I think is really powerful that beyond the pro this and anti this is mm. one of the most I remember one of the most uh, um, affecting, you know, uh, mm. pieces that I, opinion pieces that I read during the Confederate monument, you know, conversation mm. about, you know, are you erasing history? Are you mm. reckoning with history? That whole kind of back and forth was uh, a piece and I'm not remembering her name. I think it's Rebecca Carroll. I might be wrong called my body is a Confederate monument. And it's mm. about her mixed race history and and the facts behind that mixed race history and mm. and and it's like it kind of took the issue in a third direction mm. you know it's like you know not a binary yeah yeah it's an embodied it's uh, experience of this issue that goes beyond you know pros and cons you know and i think that that's extremely powerful and another way with, to engage with you know um social issues in a way that um and I always say that, you know, now I'm to be realistic, it's hard to change people's minds nowadays because of the way media is being consumed, that, you know, people read what what they already agree with. And so they're not um, getting exposed to other points of view. So I think that it's, um, you know, but you do have people who are undecided, who are trying to figure things out. And so I think it's sometimes rather than thinking about trying to change someone's mind who is so far, yeah. you know, off in another direction. I think about that person who is thinking about the issues, but has been steeped, who has, whose history, maybe whether it's their religious background or their, you know, family background has, has uh, pushed them in one direction. Mm -hmm. And you have the opportunity to suggest to them an alternative perspective, not, you know, in terms of shouting at them, but saying, let me tell you what it's like for me. Yeah. Yeah. Let me bring you into my experience.
you're talking about the my body is a confederate monument is that what it's called i think it was called it was a new york times yeah, yeah. uh op-ed during the debates about you know the yeah. removal of confederate monuments and um and you know this debate that is it reckoning with history and accounting for history or is it you know erasing history and uh and i remember this um black writer this black mix, mixed race writer who has lineage that has mixed race in it you know wrote a piece called my body is a confederate monument and put that conversation that was like a debate you know as if it was an intellectual debate into context of her embodied past and the right. fact that in her lineage were people who sexually assaulted mm -hmm. other people and that's how things came about and so that that cannot be ignored just kind of glossed over in this in this debate and i remember reading it and just being deeply affected by it because it it took a kind of a third way yeah yeah again i mean how can you not be affected by like you have uh, Dunbar Ortiz writes about oh yeah in the chapter about like context and you know about yeah. how Native American history is taught or not you know that this idea that one of the big images stood out in that one was like I think she was saying she asks her class to picture like the United States at the time of the Europeans I'm not saying that but you know they picture the whole country rather than even just the 13 original colonies Right. Right. Like an unconscious idea right. of like manifest destiny and right. that, it, that it was, you know, quote, a land without people when obviously there have been people for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years in yes. the quote unquote new world. Imani Perry, the, the National Book Award winner, right? She right. she writes that incredibly moving piece. You know, it's basically to her kids. Yeah. And I was so interested in, you know, she writes that like, yes, I do want to take my family to Africa to see our roots, to see where we're from. But in some ways, she's like Mississippi in the South. Like that's our, like that's our home. That's where you know our story kind of starts. Yes. In so many ways, right? Um, and then just like that, that fear of of raising these kids who are seen so differently. Who we just you know, she's like, I just want you to be able to be, to breathe, to enjoy, and in that way, you're honoring you know those who have come before. And again, context is everything. Like. Yeah. How do you, how do you, you know, argue against something like Black Lives Matter when you read that? And obviously hers is not a singular story. It's not like she's the exception. She's the rule, right? I, I think it's just, you know, so for some people, I mean, we see, it's interesting. I, things are very bad right now with these, you know, uh, book bans and attempted book bans and, mm -hmm. and the kind of laws that are being passed. But, you know, I try to take a really, you know, I'm, I mean, it's deeply, deeply troubling. It, it feels like so many steps backwards. Right. But I think we've never gone through the middle of the fire. We've never huh. you know, had a true reconciliation. So it has allowed us to learn one-sided history and to have an impression of, you know, Martin Luther King died, He, but he fixed things for us. And, you know, but as opposed to he was murdered, you know, and, you know, like we've, we've learned things in a very sanitized or, or erased way. You know, our understanding of Native American people and indigenous people is is so lacking in terms of the way stories are, are told. And we kind of see this throughout. And so when you go to rectify those things, that is deeply destabilizing to the powers that be, to the people who who um, 
who stand to lose some of that power. And you know that what was it in the part about the cultural appropriation, cultural sensitivity, it was really interesting to me that as I was, you know, I, I kind of knew like that chapter is a little different than the others in the yeah. sense that instead of showing people, oh, this is how you do this. I wanted to sh- uh, share multiple perspectives mm-hmm. from writers who who are really thinking about the issue of uh, cultural appropriation and cultural sensitivity in really meaningful ways, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, in in terms of the the word that came up in everybody's pieces was power. Yes. Or power. And I suddenly know I suddenly realized as I was highlighting every line as I do in every everything I read, I suddenly was circling it in and I was like, oh wait, didn't she talk about it? Oh, didn't he talk? You know, and and so power is, you know, it's one of those things that we don't examine sometimes because sometimes we are the people who have the power. So yeah. it's not something we're going to examine, you know, necessarily unless we are, you know, compelled to. And I think that's where writing and reading and literature is so important because, you know, we have a perception of our world. And that's why I push back on the uh, against the idea of neutrality and objectivity hmm. is this idea that you you have a perspective on the world. And I remember, you know, um, Juno Diaz at a racial justice conference that I was working at, you know, when I was working in that realm, he came and he spoke and he said, we all have paraphrasing, we all have blind spots, the shape of ourselves. And that has been something that I've tried to carry with me everywhere to think about Mm. consciously, how have I been acted upon? How have I been acted upon, you know, by you know, my culture, by my parents, by my, you know, and if we sit and we think about it explicitly, you know, and you think about if you come across something and you come across a piece of history that you never learned, not only is it important to read about that history, but actually important to take a moment and say, why did was this history not taught to me? Mm. Why was it so important for this to be left out of the history books? Yeah. And not assume that it's an entirely passive decision. Hmm. And I wrote, I included the piece that I wrote called the red ink of revisionist history. And I know one of the realms I, I, I don't know a lot about is the education realm. So I actually spent weeks just researching, like, I didn't understand, to me, the idea that textbooks are anything but an educational tool and seen as a business opportunity. And so, you know, a lot of what we're seeing today is literally trying to look at children's education not as um, education, but as an opportunity to, you know, indoctrinate or to win the culture Mm -hmm. wars or to sell books to them. You know, um, it it was amazing. But I I wrote that piece because I wanted to understand how I had read about multiple incidents of things being written in history books, like, and we're talking about well-known publishers, educational publishers, writing things saying slavery was economic migration or like things like that you know really matter and you think how but but i always think this wasn't a singular person Mm -hmm. you know like oftentimes we talk about a writer who misspoke or miswrote or who you know but this means there's so many levels of review for those things so there was a complicitness you Mm -hmm. know complicity happening you know Mm -hmm. where multiple levels of review and then i didn't know much about textbook approval process and school boards and and we're all learning about school boards now as we learn about how you know they're being taken over by nefarious entities you know mm-hmm. uh, folks with an agenda and and so forth uh just like we're learning about election boards right. uh, and these are all situses of power definitely 
the local level. I wish that quote wasn't so profound, the one from Juno Diaz. It sounds like he's kind of talking about himself. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, you know, it's interesting, like in the book, you know, I included quotes, and I thought about this, you know, this is a book that's about writing with conscience. And I know that there are things that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie has said, you know, in mm-hmm. reference to the transgender community. I know there are things that, you know, Juno Diaz has been alleged to do and, you know, and all of that. And I thought, should I not include them? And then I thought, no, I think that, you know, like when we have those uh, conversations about artists, you know, whether a visual artist, literary mm-hmm. artist, you know, I, my feeling is canceling is another way, except maybe in the most extreme cases, like mm-hmm. truly, you know, but otherwise, I actually think that people should be presented in a holistic way with, mm-hmm. with their positives and negatives and with their transgressions and with their, you know, and then the reader we trust the reader or the person, you know, to make the decision, decision and to take it all in and decide, you know, yeah. how do they want to, how much, you know, how do they want to think about this? Yeah. You know, because, um, you know, I think in, in the literary world, we know that there are beautiful, powerful works mm-hmm. um, written uh, and created by people who are deeply flawed, um, who are uh, in their own ways and sometimes as a product of their place and time, you know, and so forth. And so I, this is another thing that I had to sit with, because sometimes, you know, um, you know, and things that have unfolded, you know, particularly with Juno Diaz, is that's a contemporary issue. It's something that happened after I became a writer, yeah. you know, um, and so it's not something that's in the past, you know, and I have to think about it. And one of the things I will say that I've done, and some people won't agree, is given that I came from the social change space, that work is about transformation. Mm. So that means that I have to believe in the power of change. Societal change, but societal change starts with individuals one by one by one, Mm. you know, deciding. So I, even though sometimes it might be very comfortable for me to be like, yes, banish you. I banish Mm. you for thinking this or saying this or whatever. I might have to take a pause on a on on a person for my own personal, yeah. you know. But then I think I like to believe in the power of transformation and change. And I mean, it's on that person to do that. And this is something I've I've had to. This is another thing I had to kind of sit with and say, well, aren't you? Didn't you work in social change? Doesn't that mean this? Mm-hmm. Don't you think that you know. You have yeah. to allow people. And that's what I worry most about with the way conversations are these days. It doesn't allow for that. Especially like chapter five and on, but all throughout the book, there's so much nuance in the book, which is obviously, it, which I very much mean as a compliment. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot about, you know, there's a lot about the why, but there's also the how personal narrative, like La Otra from, from Diaz, right? It's a stunning piece. It's very personal. It's about like the the relationship between her mother and father and the fights and and then it's like in the other essay, it's like which is about like brown and black girls and how like the school to prison pipeline and it's very statistic based, but it also brings in her wrongful. I don't yeah. know if she was put in. I don't know if she was imprisoned, but she was accused and you know tough. Did she have to get juvenile hall? Maybe I think so. Yeah. Right. 
but just like, but just, you know, you, you write about how the personal narrative can be so well connected and show to more objective yes. stat based things, data based. And then of course the hybrid is, you know, you think of like the ethos and pathos and logos and that type of thing. Right. And I don't know from where you're sitting. I definitely over the course of teaching the, the course, the mm. hybrid thing is something that came up and, and just kind of grew as I saw more and more, um, books and pieces that mm-hmm. um that were pursuing a hybrid model yeah you know um I, I and i that. feel like do you see that do you see that I more from where you sit i, I definitely do. see it more yeah. and what i found is as i i so i kind of um started including it in the class and kind of referencing it more and talking about it more and giving examples mm-hmm. um and it really resonates with a lot of people yeah. in my classes because maybe they are academics, but they also have experienced the issue. And and it was partly their experience of the issue personally that pushed them to pursue uh, uh, studying it deeply and now writing about it. Right. And the feeling that, that writing about it academically does not completely fulfill what they're trying to accomplish. Mm. Writing about it in a personal essay maybe doesn't make them feel like they are able to give the depth mm-hmm. of history and context that they want to. And so I I think what's exciting is I think we are seeing the form ahead of the leading the way for literature, meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, before we have all the language to talk about hybridity and how it works and how it, you know, we are seeing it kind of off and running. And sometimes it's, you know, the poets who are leading this because, you know, they are, they're often ahead of the curve on everything. Right. (laughs) Like Jose Antonio Vargas, who I'm crossing my fingers I've talked to, is maybe going to be a guest down the road. But oh, great! Yeah, you know the advocate for for immigration reform, and you know what makes his writing so moving and so award winning is that it's he's an expert on the numbers and the stats and this year this yes. many people and this and that, but also personally affected, right? Yes. And his big, you know, his big quote exactly. coming his big coming out as a as an undocumented immigrant was, exactly. was very courageous and, and kind of the shot heard around the world. Is, is it pronounced du- the 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 woman who identifies as Dalit? Is it Dutch or Dut? Oh, Yashika Dut. Yes. Right, but she talked about quote unquote also, you know, yes. coming out as Dalit. Coming out as Dalit, exactly. Right, and just as as Dalit, like, and and saying that hey, this is not an Indian problem. This is a global one. I mean, that was it's so. A global problem. Yeah. Yeah. That was so affecting that it you know it takes place an hour and a half away from me or two hours away from me in Silicon Valley where I went to college, and a lot of us wouldn't even know that that the caste system still has those remnants and how it affects, you know, Americans and stuff. In this in country, right. In this country, in life, in this country. And I can yeah. definitely say it's, it's, it's definitely, um, I see it's pervasiveness, but it's like, just that, you know, you, that's a really good point you make, like, you know, both of them, you know, they had this coming out experience uh-huh. and that, you know, if you think about it, the fact that it has to be later in someone's life, or it's something that they're, yes. you know, something they're cal- thinking of the, the pros and cons or what's what could be lost and all of that that does all that that it deeply underscores Speaks what is at risk and the stigma mm-hmm. so when people sit there you know and so that that perspective 
is so uh, valuable because they're telling the story from the inside. And that's one of the things I talk about is this idea of, do you want to report, report this thing from the outside? Do you want to tell the story from the inside out? And then there's, of course, models of hybridity, which allow you to kind of, I think what hybridity allows is this kind of toggling back and forth between, you know, insider and outsider perspective, mm-hmm. which um, uh, allows you, you know, the left brain, left brain, right brain, you know, depending mm-hmm. on different people, you know, for some people, reading dispassionate reportage with statistics is actually what works is what something that persuades them even more because they they're like, well, listen, I'm a numbers guy, you Mm -hmm. know, and this is what I'm paying attention to. And it's really this that opened my eyes up to the harms of climate change, you know, because look at how much landmass is being lost, you know, like, so they'll, Mm -hmm. you know, that's that there are those people. And then there are others who it's the personal story of losing livelihoods, you know, people, you know, farmers losing their livelihoods that because they themselves are a farmer and suddenly they're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is what's Mm. happening. And then there's like a lot of people in between who, when you, when confronted with both, suddenly they are not able to continue to think, not think about that issue because they're kind of seeing it from a macro and micro perspective. And that combination is really powerful. Yeah, again, nuance and subtleties are definitely common themes throughout the book. Um, Nicole Chung, like her piece was so good because, you know, it's about her being a transracial adoptee and people trying to like impose their ideas on her story, even on her parents, her adopted parents. You know, both things can be true at once. She can say, you know, I I love my adopted family and I've had very good experiences, but also I have these, you know, ambivalent feelings and you know, racism has been an issue for sure. And I've been made to feel different. I've been made to feel, you know, hated. And like the both of those can be true at the same time. Right. But it's interesting to me when you think about like, I love, you know, I read her book also, you know, uh, that this grew out of. And it's interesting to me when you think about the resistance to this, you know, so essentially, she's complicating the tropes right. and the that have existed right like like mm-hmm. thank goodness some good white people came and rescued yes, you yes, yes, you know yes. and now your life is so much better and, christian, christian white people yeah christian white people absolutely <laughs> and so so like that's that's and that's you know and there's nothing more to see here you know it's like mm-hmm. this is this is the beginning and the middle and the end of the story and yeah. and if you read about in that piece that's included in here and in her book and in other things that she's written the reaction to her saying this some people get so it triggers such anger yeah, and yeah, yeah. such, you know, oh, you're ungrateful. And, you know, mm-hmm. and you think about why, why is there that reaction? Yeah. Who this are they to tell her? Yeah. No, but why is that? Why are they so invested in this? And it's because they're invested in that narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, Jenga, you know, when you pull out one piece, then it uh, requires them to, you know, it's you know, when you look at, you know, um, whether it's like you talk about the Catholic Church, how much was invested in the secrecy around priests and assaults, you know, mm-hmm. trying to think about whether it's in Boston or whether it's in other places. Unfortunately, all over. Yeah. yeah, all over. And that's the thing. It was actually all over. And so you think about and that's why I, I've come to you know really think about as I stepped back. And that's hard to do sometimes when you feel mm-hmm. very passionately. And then you have to kind of step back and say, this is not a onesie twosie. This is not just a singular incident. There are people who are very invested in this. And some of those people, it's about power, you know, and some of those people, it's an unraveling. If this isn't true, what else isn't true? It's a lot to take, you know, when you, when you sit down with that, but if you willingly sit down and say, wow, I was somebody who 
um, learned a lot of history in school. How was this very important history left out and why? And it's not about being a conspiracy theorist, you know, it's really about understanding um, the way uh, power works and how history sometimes become crafted, you know, and created and packaged because it's very important to the present time and, and how things exist in the present time. Well, yeah. So this chrono- chronologically, this is not the last piece, but a good one to end on where you talk about, you know, once you, the Jenga thing, once you take out one piece, you know, other yeah. pieces fall, so to speak, like somebody named Kavita Das. I don't know if you know her. <laughs> I, the... I vaguely heard about <laughs> right. her. But, right. you know. Yeah. But, but that piece on tolerance, I thought was so interesting. Like, you know, that, that has been the American model. I don't know, since the nine, you know, like tolerance yeah. and we, yeah. we tolerate all and maybe again maybe the people who kind of were pushing that kind of had good intentions like tolerance for all yeah. melting pot and all of that but tolerance i mean there's so much in that word tolerance like you said is just barely tolerating somebody barely you know not even thinking of people's like what is it life liberty and the pursuit of happiness it's just like maybe the life liberty <laughs> in, right and i mean it's very 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 limiting and it's and it's also makes the person look like an imposition right Exactly. And it, it, I'm doing it, you a favor. my understanding of the word, word evolved because I grew up in late 70s, early 80s, and tolerance was this beautiful thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's it's how we're all going to get along and be together. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, no, what they're really talking about is um, these people tolerating yeah. these people, which right. suggests that fundamentally who belongs and who doesn't belong and who is, as you said, doing a favor by, you know, um, you know, letting them sleep in the basement, you mm. know, and that's, mm. that's tolerating, you know, as a, you know, so, and then I had to sit with the word and really say, when, how do I use the word in a daily, you know, on a daily basis, you know, is that a word that I use to say that I really like something or that I enjoy something, or, you know, you talk about like literally tolerating, you know, how, what spice level can you tolerate? I think I use that example in the piece. And I think, yeah, that's often a time. I think that's the actual word that's used when they yeah, talk. Pain about, comes into involved. Yeah, pain, yeah, right. threshold, pain right. threshold. Pain tolerance, um, yeah. so I really sat with that and, and I'd examine it. And uh, cause I was, um, I think this was, in the wake of the George Floyd murder. And I was looking at the conversations and I was like, you know, what, what's kind of missing from this conversation and, and, and talking. And I was hearing the word tolerance kind of thrown around. I said, that's such a low bar. And I, I think it's like the way I feel about, you know, we hear now about more and more, whether it's in publishing, whether it's in different realms, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's like diversity is usually where things stop. You know, it's like what you see in commercials. You mm. know, now commercials are more diverse, but, and that's not nothing, you it's know. A start. So it's a It's a start. It's just that oftentimes it's the end right now. Mm. You know, it's like, what more do you want? Don't you see you're mm. in the commercials? Mm. You know, it's like mm. not really thinking about equity and what, what equity looks like, you know. Mm. And, and why is that? Oh, I mean, why do we stop there? Why do we, you know, power it goes back to power and like you know and the fact that you realize that oh we have to actually go to the root of this thing and we actually have to you know start and think about why this is and I've thought a lot over the last few years what an examination would look like of all the companies all the entities that made statements in the weeks following the murder of George Floyd and if you know like literally just a whole 
group of people showed up, you know, and said, hey, we'd like to go through and see, actually see uh, what actually has been done, you know, to make that those statements that were made and proclamations and promises, you know, what what has actually been done. And I and I know people who who do diversity, equity, inclusion work and how they sometimes feel so pulled because can a singular person or two people come in and, you know, is it their job to undo what an organization or a company has put into place for decades, you know, can can a singular person or can a person put into a position within the organization who might not have, you know, the lines of power, you mm. know, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's very, it's very, very complicated. And that's why, you know, um, I think when someone's writing about, um, you know, these things, they have to kind of sit with and say, okay, who am I in this? What is my motivations? Who do I really need to talk to in here beyond the HR spokesperson? You know, like, well, who do you really need to talk to? And I was really excited. You know, I've had students literally say they're going to do co-bylines with their subject. So we talk about shifting mm. the needle and, you know, changing the balance mm. of power. And, you know, as a result of taking, you know, my class or, you know, um, you know, Crystal Z. Campbell, who's pieces in here, um, who's both a visual artist and a, and a writer and a poet, you know, it's such a powerful piece about a personal connection to mm-hmm. the Tulsa race massacre, you know, being from Tulsa and not learning that history, mm-hmm. being, you know, uh, you know, a, a black multiracial person, mm-hmm. you know, and what, what is in, in why, why is that history not taught in Tulsa? And also, you know, it used to be recur- referred to as a, the Tulsa race um riot you know mm. and what was that language used as opposed mm. to like so you really when you get underneath you and and um you know and, and in their piece they really talk about going into the archives and how much has been literally erased or blacked out on yeah. record holes in it or something yes exactly oh and so it's really fascinating and you just think oh wow this didn't have something like there is a very intentional effort yeah. Um, to to alter and to shape, you know, history. And that's why I thought Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's piece, you know, it's like, okay, if we're gonna, you know, like let's let's um she's recontextualizing history by talking about the history from a different perspective, mm-hmm. which just literally changes both the context and the narrative. Because by changing the context and who's telling it, the narrative itself is gonna shift. So, and, you know, and that's like, you know, um, usually that's a big aha moment for my students is thinking about context and narrative and thinking about them. And I know maybe it's not entirely oppositional, but it helped me in making decisions because every time you sit down to write, you have to make decisions about what are you going to focus on? What if it's when you try to do everything and serve everybody that usually a a, a piece fails. And that was a hard thing for me to learn because I was Mm -hmm. trying to do everything, satisfy my background in social change and satisfy you know narrative and it doesn't always work that way so i had to really think for this piece for this moment how much background and information do i want to give and how much do i want to focus on the narrative elements and how is it going to show up in this piece and usually um when we talk about that and i kind of um talk about it in those terms I, I, uh, people have an epiphany and it uh, liberates them perhaps to, I think it, what it does is helps you find your voice for, for a piece rather than being governed by other things. 
Well, yeah, those those opinions and those, well, those epiphanies, I should say, those come with questions and questions and discussion. And you mentioned being the book being published in long reads, and there's there's nothing like the the drawn, you know, the the long discussions instead of our bite size, you know, Twitter, oh, yes. you yeah. know, like I said, hot takes and and just to questions, questions. There's so many questions that come up through the book, and you know, the great thinkers and writers and books are full of questions and questions and questions. And that's one of the great things about your book. Oh, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm thank you so much for the deep read and this great conversation. You were talking about long reads and the long and this conversation is like one right? of those conversations where we've gotten under the hood of the car and just kind of messed around. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm looking forward to like using, you know, parts of it, all of it in in my my classes, you know. Definitely if I were teaching at the college level, but on other stuff for the high school level that, you know, in smaller pieces or articles or connect, you know. They can definitely be used. Such a cool self-perpetuating or self-propelling thing where I could see it being used. You brought it about because of your teaching in classes, and I can see yeah. other classes using it for sure. Yeah, that's one of the most edifying things is that I hear about it out in the mm-hmm. world, you know, um, even Zooming into classrooms, you know, oh, I'm Zooming cool. into classrooms and the questions that students, you know, have asked. I mean, a, a father who is um, a doc, you know, doctor, and actually, you know, the father was in one race, the son was mixed race, he, they came to an event of mine, and that son was in high school. And the son asked like a really excellent, you know, question, and I was so happy, the father bought him the book, and then, you know, asked me to sign it to the son. And Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, um, and, and said, Oh, this is I, he wants to write, and he's thinking about all these issues. And, uh, I think this will really, you know, um, spur him. So uh, I I will say that I I really tried to write it with the least amount of jargon. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time, you know, if I, I did, I would kind of go back in the second pass or third pass and say, is there another way I can say this? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, I remember somebody in my class asking me at one point, what is craft? <laughs> and that really shows you that that even that is a word that is not, you know, universal or universal. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. The book, the book does feel very accessible for sure. I know that's always something that, that is, you know, could be subjective, but yeah. definitely accessible one. And, and one that's going to have a long, pardon the pun, shelf life. <laughs> I hope so. But I'm pumped. Thanks so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Pete. Thank you so much for this great discussion. Thank you for listening to episode 188 with Kavita Das. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple. Leave a five-star review, please. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1, the digit one. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast peter real my last name is spelled r-i-e-h-l check out the page that describes the benefits of a patreon membership including cool swag and bonus episodes thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show my diy podcast and my extensive reading research 
editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look in an often ignored art form. Please retweet, share, email, word of mouth. Please pass on word of the Chills of Will podcast. The intro song for the podcast is Wind Down, instrumental version. The other song played on the episode is Hoops, instrumental by Matt Whitehour. And both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 189 with Andres Resendez. He is a historian at the University of California, Davis. And in 2017, he won the Bancroft Prize in American History and Diplomacy for The Other Slavery, The Uncovered Story of Indian Enslavement in America. This episode will air on June 27th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Kavita Das, whose work, like Craft and Conscience, How to Write About Social Issues, gives you chills at will. (laughs) 